Hello and welcome to another episode of Boundless Body Radio. I'm your host, Casey Ruff, and today we have another amazing guest to introduce to you now. James Nestor is a best-selling author and journalist. He has written for Outside Magazine, The Atlantic, NPR, and The New York Times, among many others. His first nonfiction book is called Deep, which he wrote in 2014 all about the sport of freediving. The book won praise and several awards all over the world. Today, we will be focusing on his latest Breck book, an instant bestseller called Breath, The New Science of a Lost Art, which he wrote in 2020. This fascinating book is a mixture of new science, humor, history, and, this, and simple and constructive takeaways that you can use. The book has gained praise and attention from many news organizations and outlets and experts all over the world, including best-selling authors Joshua Foer and Patrick Meehan, and health gurus like Wim Hof and Joe Rogan. James Nestor, it's a pleasure to welcome you to Boundless Body Radio. Thanks a lot for having me. Absolutely. It's an absolute honor. Um, before we get rolling on your new book, I have to ask, do you really drive your car on used cooking oil? That's right. I've had old Mercedes uh, for about 12 years, and a lot of people don't realize that the diesel engine was first designed to be run on waste peanut oil, and they can still be run on used cooking oil. So call it crazy, but uh, it's a lot better than using, you know, regular diesel petroleum. So. That's amazing. We've had uh, Dr. Chris Kenobi on our show um, and also Tucker Goodrich. Both are experts in um, seed oils and how we should not consume them. So that sounds like a much better way to use them. And if you can run a car off of them, you probably shouldn't be running a human body off of them. <laughs> No, you know, that's, I, I'm all into seeds, but uh, I'll leave that to the experts to to debate. But uh, the great thing about these old cars and running them off of used cooking oil is restaurants have to get rid of this used cooking oil, French sure. fry oil, Indian oil, whatever, and they throw it down the drain or they it, it gets reprocessed, you know, into soap and other stuff. So uh, it's a it's a much cleaner fuel source. That's great. I love that. Uh, so let's talk about your book, Breath. You had volunteered for um, somewhat of a, a torture project. And when, when the listener hears that, they might be thinking like, you know, maybe it's like the scene from um, The Princess Bride where there's this like torture machine that you're hooked up to, or, you know, maybe there's going to be horses that, you know, run in opposite directions and rip you apart with, you know, ropes attached to your hands and legs, or maybe you were waterboarded. Can you tell us a little bit about your torture experiment? Yeah, I don't view it as a torture experiment at all. This was a scientific experiment done with Stanford where we were just testing the difference between mouth breathing and nasal breathing. And some people might think that this is some jackass stun or some supersize me thing, but it really wasn't. If you look at 25 to 50% of the population habitually breathes through its mouth, okay? So we were just lulling ourselves into a position that so much of the population already knew. The difference was we were testing what happened to the body and what happened to the brain for 10 days of mouth breathing versus 10 days of nasal breathing. So we never viewed it as, as this sort of jokey, crazy, wacky thing. This was an experiment to understand more deeply how the pathway through which we breathe affects our health. Mm. Yeah, that's really well explained. I guess it's just that it sounded extremely torturous when you were doing that experiment. Can you tell us what was happening when you were like forced to not breathe through your nose? Well, it was awful, you know, and we knew it wasn't going to be a picnic because I knew enough about the nose and about, 
how air through the mouth and air through the nose are two completely different things. I knew enough about that at the time, but it's something altogether different to experience this stuff personally. So at the very beginning, my blood pressure went through the roof, which was kind of expected. When you tend to breathe too much, you can stress your body out. You can spike your blood pressure that way. But when I went to sleep that night, that's where I was very confused because I went from not snoring at all, zero snoring, zero sleep apnea. We took about two weeks of baselines and zero snoring to the first night of nasal obstruction. I snored for about an hour and a half. And then a few days later, I was snoring for four hours a night. And the other subject in the experiment had the exact same thing, but way worse than me. So uh, I don't know a lot of people who are considering the pathway through which they breathe air and how that's affecting their sleep quality, their snoring, their sleep apnea. But uh, of course it does. And once you look at the physiology and how our airways are built, everything starts making perfect sense. Mm, Wow. We had Mickey Bendor on our show. He's a paleo uh, anthropologist, archaeologist, excuse me. And Mm -hmm. um, he taught us a little bit about brain growth and how that changed over time, how our brains got bigger. Can you tell us a little bit about how our breathing has changed over time? Sure. So we started processing food. Uh, you know, over a million years ago. And by that, I mean, we started banging meat against rocks, tenderizing it. There's archaeological evidence proving that. And then maybe about 800,000 years ago, about a million years ago, we gained controlled use of fire. So we started cooking foods and this released way more calories. So with those calories, with that extra energy, our brains started growing very rapidly. So our faces started changing and our brain needed real estate. So it took it from the front of our faces. Uh, We were perfectly fine. We were breathing just fine because these changes were happening over tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of years. So the change that has happened to the human face, to the nasal cavities, to the mouth that is affecting so many of us today. These are changes that have happened very rapidly in the past few hundred years. And that's why so many of us are struggling to breathe. Mm. You mentioned uh, quite a bit about soft foods versus chewing foods. Can you tell us how the soft foods that we've developed um, in in those last hundred years have really affected our breathing? Yeah, well, there's a reason why so many of us have mouths too small for our faces. Uh, why we have crooked teeth. We have crooked teeth because our mouths are too small. There's a reason why so many of us have chronic obstruction. 14% of the population has chronic sinusitis. 50% has chronically obstructed turbinates. You know, uh, 75% have a deviated septum. So these things didn't develop randomly. They developed mostly because of our lack of chewing in required for modern foods. And that includes breastfeeding. So we know that infants who are breastfed versus those who are bottle fed will have a way less chance of having snoring and sleep apnea later on in life. They'll look different too. They'll have a different profile and they'll tend to have straighter teeth because all of that chewing in infancy allows the infant to pull their face outward, allows the mouth to grow larger, allows them to build more skeletature and musculature in the face. Imagine doing something two hours, you know, every two hours, you're doing this very complex, rigorous action. Ask any mom, she'll, she'll tell you that, that infants chew and it's a very (laughs) intense experience. So that chewing and that mastication early on in life, going from infancy into 
being a young kid and, you know, not eating applesauce, not eating smoothies, but eating real food, which is what all our, of all of our ancestors did. This allows us to grow these strong, powerful faces, which allows us to have much larger airways, which allows us to breathe better later on in life. Wow. And, you know, Weston A. Price did a lot of research on that when he was looking at, you know, diets and the, the, the structure of the face, you were able to see it in, in basically the catacombs of Paris. Can you tell us what that experience was like? Sure. And Weston Price did some amazing research. You know, it's interesting that a lot of people consider him like this cagey, sketchy character. This guy was the, the founder of the research arm of the National Dental Association. Uh, he was firmly within the scientific community. It's just since he died in the late 40s, some people have taken some of what he said and really misinterpreted it and, and exploited it to other things. So his name is somewhat sullied in scientific circles. But if you look at his research, this is a guy who spent... 10 years traveling the world, collecting 15,000 slides, taking tens of thousands of measurements of mouths all around the world. And he found without a doubt that modern foods, industrial foods were shrinking our mouths and were shrinking our nasal cavities and were causing all of these diseases, many of which were tied to our inability to breathe properly. So, you know, Weston Price was studying in the 30s I can't exactly go around the world and, and look at the same indigenous cultures that he looked at because they're all eating flaming hot Cheetos now right. and Pepsi. Right. There's no right. control. <laughs> There's no control. But but it is interesting that the few remaining cultures that are hunter gatherers in the world, perfectly straight teeth. Okay. Um, no airway problems. They don't snore. They don't have sleep apnea. <laughs> That's not a coincidence, right? So uh, I had an opportunity to go down to the Paris quarries, which is different than the catacombs. The gotcha. catacombs is this sanctioned tour where tourists go down and you can see all these skulls from the last 2000 years since Roman times. And, you know, it's great. I've gone on that tour. But that only represents about 1% of the quarries. So underneath all of Paris are these quarries. It's like this ghost city of tunnels. And they were built because miners went down there to get limestone. So when you're in Paris, you see all that white limestone that's everywhere, that's covering the Louvre or the, the Arc de Triomphe or, or wherever. That's from underground Paris. That's where they got this stuff. So when they ran out of space for cemeteries and graveyards, they put dead people down there. And so you've got a collection of bones. There's something like 6 million skeletons down there. And I got a line on a line on a line of someone who apparently knew these quarries, knew the route around there quite well. People have died down there. So you want to really find someone who, who knows their stuff and was able to, to spend several hours looking at skulls looking at what's happened to our species and it was an incredible experience and, and also pretty devastating and depressing. What did you see in the skulls themselves? Well, I'm not an expert at studying skulls, right? And especially at that time, this was really at the beginning of, of my research, but I knew enough about facial structure. I knew how to look at the upper palate of a jaw to see if it had a V shape, if it had an indentation. I knew that the flatter, wider upper palate is much healthier. So I knew, you know, the 
the basics of it. So you could see skulls in some areas in which the skulls were taken from, from cemeteries and these people were, were buried hundreds of years ago. They had a vastly different facial structure. And then where we, where we went, we went to essentially this, uh, it was this mass grave for cholera victims in the 1800s where they dug this huge hole and they put everyone in there with with quicklime. So you're able to enter in from the bottom upwards into this thing. Wow. And there's thousands and thousands of skulls. And you could see by the 1800s, people were already eating all this soft crap, uh, you know, just soups, just baked goods, just canned stuff, just bottled stuff. And their skulls are different. And this was no, this was nothing I discovered, right? Researchers, biological anthropologists have known this for, for literally more, more than a hundred years. We've known this. Darwin wrote about it. So it, but again, as a journalist, I like to experience and see these things myself so I can better understand them and then convey them to the reader. What an amazing experience. I mean, I think about my own face structure and not only like all the cavities that I got growing up, um, I remember them trying to seal, you know, some of my teeth, which I don't even know what that is. And then uh, as a, it was at like a precaution that they removed all four of my wisdom teeth. And you wouldn't think that would have anything to do with breathing or soft foods in the diet. Yeah, but all you have to do is look at our ancestors. Did anybody have their wisdom teeth pulled out? Was anyone having impacted teeth? Look at the 5,400 different mammals on the planet. How many times does a dog need its wisdom teeth pulled out? <laughs> or braces? Or a dolphin? Or a whale? Or a chimp? Or a chief? I mean, it's ridiculous that we've accepted this as normal. And I certainly did. I never thought twice about it. I had braces, extractions, headgear, retainers. Everyone I knew had this stuff. And, but it's shocking to learn that just a few hundred years ago, not only did we not have it, we didn't need it because our teeth were perfectly straight. Wow. So tell us about breathing. What did you learn about what a proper breath should be? Well, it's, it's tricky. Uh, my father-in-law is a pulmonologist, so he's the first guy I went to. I said, what is the, the optimum way to breathe at rest, when you're exercising, when you're lightly exercising? And he said, I have no idea. So he's been a pulmonologist for 40 years. Wow. He deals with pathologies of the lungs, and he's so good at it. You get in a car accident, you get lung cancer, you get emphysema, you need a lung transplant, see a pulmonologist. <laughs> there, it's amazing what modern science can do. Wow. But there is this gap. You would think that the pulmonologist would be the one understanding and, and, and disseminating knowledge about breathing but they're only looking at the function of the lungs. So nobody in our medical silos is looking at the entire airway from the nose to the mouth, to the throat, to the lungs, right? It's not like our body is just all of these different silos. It's one united organism. So you have to be looking at how all these pieces tie together. And that's not how it works. There's rhinologists, there's otolaryngologists, there's pulmonologists, but but nobody's looking at this the whole thing. So it was very hard to get that information to find what proper breathing is. And I had to go to respiratory therapists um, who are often poo-pooed by medical professionals because they're like, oh, they're not real doctors, but they know a lot more about breathing than than uh, 
than so many of the people that I had talked to. Mm, wow. So I use the meditation app Calm, which I've heard you give interviews mm -hmm. on before. Um, and I really love it. And I do the daily Calm. I've been doing it every day for almost a year. And it, it asked me to start with a few big, deep breaths and then to kind of resume my breathing as I normally would. And I almost always notice that my breathing is a little slower, um, a little calmer after I take those big, deep breaths. Can you tell us a little bit about how the breath can be an anchor point for consciousness? Yeah, what's that? What that's doing, and, and Calm's great. I've I've used Calm before, and and I, I love their mission. I love that they're bringing awareness to people about meditation and breathing. It's an amazing service. But I think that the main thing that all of these are just bringing your awareness to your breath. So if you think of any meditation, I don't know any that doesn't first have you sit down and focus on your breath, take a big breath. Take a soft breath, breathe through your nose. That's how everything starts because once you start taking conscious control of your breath, you can start to take conscious control of your nervous system function. And once you do that, you can start to control your heart rate. And once you do that, you can start to control your blood pressure and your stress levels and your sleep. So we can't consciously control these other organs, right? These other functions that are all autonomic in our body, but we can control our breathing. And when we do that, we can influence all these other functions. So Starting with three big breaths is great. Starting with a sigh, this is what Dr. Andrew Huberman down at Stanford has been studying, this thing called a physiological sigh, which is one breath on top of the other. And then you let it all go. And then... So that just resets your system, right? And you, you think about a lion lying down to sleep or a dog lying down to sleep, they often go, oh, and then they go to sleep. So we can do that too, and we can consciously trigger that. So any of those methods work. Mm. And and I'm so glad you brought that up. We have those two, you know, kind of sides of the nervous system with our fight or flight and our rest and digest. And one is, is pro-stress and one is anti-stress and helps us kind of chill out. And we need both, and both are very important. But I think so many people in today's day and age are living so far into the end of like chronic stress. And I know you talked about that in the book. And so I just think those conscious breaths during the day are are so important when, I mean, I guess I do my morning meditation every single day, but when are some surprising times that most people could benefit from taking a few big, deep breaths? Well, big, deep breaths or softer breaths or not breathing at all, you can use these throughout the day. We carry our breath with us all day long throughout our entire lives. So it's an opportunity really at any time to focus on your breath. This doesn't mean you need to become neurotic about it. It just means that once you become aware of it, you can start allowing yourself to breathe more efficiently per what you're doing. And once you do that, you're going to have so much more energy. And you're going to save your body from a lot of wear and tear. You know, we get most of our energy from air, from, from our breath. And we're thinking about what we're eating. A lot of us are, oh, is that avocado from Mexico or is it organic? Oh, you know, uh, oh, I shouldn't have too many carbs here. But we're not thinking about our breathing, which is crazy <laughs> considering that that's really what is fueling us most of the time. We can only last a few minutes without breathing until we're out of energy and we die. So why not find a way of breathing more efficiently so that you can operate more efficiently? Mm.
And you talk in your book a little bit about uh, the timing of breathing. Yeah, I, I know you, you just mentioned like there's not an exact way to do things, but what have you found as far as like a something that's near an optimal kind of timing for inhalation and exhalation or the number of breaths people should be taking? Well, everyone is different, right? Um, but we found that, I, I should say collectively, we uh, researchers, scientists, breathing therapists, various people who have run studies have found that breathing at a very slow, light, rhythmic pace of about five to six seconds in and five to six seconds out allows your heart rate to slow down, more oxygen to the brain, blood pressure will go down, and your cardiovascular system, respiratory system will enter into a state of coherence where everything's working at peak efficiency. If you have a heart rate variability monitor, this is a great thing to do. If you have a live feedback on it, you can breathe in this pace about one, two, three, four, five, and then out two, three, four, five. And you can watch what happens to all those waves. Uh, they all enter into this synchronous pattern because that is your body responding and working at peak efficiency. Uh, because I have old cars and some of your listeners may have old cars, uh, probably not I'm really aging myself with this. You can almost think of your breathing as, as the timing of, of the pistons in the car, right? You have to set the timing just right for things to run smoothly. If you have a car where everything's slightly out of sync, it's going to run really rough. Well, you want your body to run smoothly as well. And so this is a way of doing that. Uh, again, everyone's different. This might be too long or, or might feel stifling to some people, then slow it down. No one's judging you. Breathe in to a count of about four and out to a count of about four. If you want, you can extend it a little bit. So just breathing this way, uh, various psychiatrists, various researchers are using this technique for people with depression, for anxiety, people with PTSD, and more. And it's been incredibly effective. Wow. I think a lot of people also... Um, when they think about breathing, they're thinking about the inhalation and thinking less about the exhalation. Like that's like the more automatic part, but why should we be focusing on the, the exhalation of the breath? Well, one of our most base fears in life is to lose the ability to take a breath. And we're finding now that that's dictating or strongly influencing so many fear-based disorders like anxiety and panic is this People are so scared they're going to lose, they're going to be choked off from their breath that they start breathing like this. <laughs> That's just their body's response to reassure themselves constantly that they're getting enough breath. This is the most inefficient way of breathing. It actually makes it harder for your body to get oxygen when you're over breathing. So, you know, uh, again, everybody is different. There's uh, there's a slightly different breathing permutations for each person. But that slow breathing and that exhaling very deeply allows that inhale to be so much more enriching. If you look at people jogging or working out, I used to see this all the time at the gym, people just <laughs> thinking that <coughs> excuse me, they're getting this really vigorous workout. They're not doing their bodies any favors by doing that. They're running more anaerobically, which actually makes it harder to burn fat. So only by exhaling fully and richly can you get a full inhale. 
So by exhaling more, you're going to be able to inhale and breathe less. You'll get more energy with fewer breaths because you're doing it more, more rhythmically, more consistently. Mm, that's very well explained. <coughs> I'm, I'm so glad you Sorry mentioned that. Oh, you're fine. I'm so okay. glad. <laughs> I got something in my throat when I was over breathing. That's another reason, people. You get crap in your throat and when you're in the middle of an interview. <clears throat> okay, I'm good now. Good. Uh, I'm so glad you mentioned the anaerobicness of the breath. I spent most of my career using metabolic hearts and measuring people's breath. It's part of why I find this just so hmm. endlessly fascinating as I've, I've you know, been able to measure people's metabolic rates as they're resting or as they're exercising and seeing the difference between the oxygen and carbon dioxide that they're breathing in and out. Can you explain a little bit the difference between aerobic and anaerobic metabolism and how that relates to what you mentioned, which is fat burning? Sure. So our bodies are very smart and our cells are very smart. When they are denied oxygen, they can run on just sugars. So they can run anaerobically, which is great. Um, so when you're looking at someone sprinting for 30 seconds, that's almost all anaerobic energy, right? The problem is with this anaerobic energy is it doesn't last very long. <laughs> after, after a while, after a minute maximum, uh, you're going to be spent of that energy. So you need to run the most efficient way of operating your body is aerobically. It's much cleaner that way too. Anaerobic energy, if you overuse it, it's totally fine to go anaerobic at certain times. We're designed to do that. But if you overuse it, you can build up a bunch of toxins in your body. Um, and, and we know that uh, you'll have more lactate. Lactate's fine, but it's the offshoots and the side effects of lactate, um, all the acidity and metabolites that can build up and, and cause a lot of problems in the long term. So this is not controversial stuff, by the way. Everyone, uh, who, whoever studied biology uh, understands this. But uh, aerobically, is that's the state in which you burn fat. So if you're a marathon runner, if, if you are someone who is into endurance sports or, or actually any kind of sport, you want to stay mostly aerobic because that's where you have your largest source of energy. If you, if you push it too far into an anaerobic state, you can also injure yourself because you're using different muscles when you are burning anaerobically. And we have more aerobic muscles than we do anaerobic muscles. And that's where people get injured when they push it too hard and they're using too much of those other anaerobic muscles and they can collapse. And you, you see this all the time when people uh, on January 2nd, when people say, okay, I'm going to get in shape now. I'm just going to run as hard as I can, as fast as I can. And then they're injured for the next three months. So I'm sure you see this all the time as well. So it's, it's about building this base and building your aerobic base very slowly and carefully and that's how you can be very strong and have uh, you know, very powerful endurance and keep doing what you're doing for a longer amount of time. Mm. We would show people a chart um, when they would come in and get these tests done, and it would show them how many calories of carbohydrates that their body could store, and there would be a very limited amount, generally speaking. Mm -hmm. we tell them, like, best case, this is going to be about 1,500, maybe around 2,000, mm -hmm. based on how much muscle you have. And then they would see this number that was based on their weight and their body fat percentage, and it would show them you know, tens or hundreds of thousands mm -hmm. of calories of fat, and they would almost fall over. Like, what? what is what's all this? And it's like, this is your fuel. This is the energy that you have on your body. 
you don't you don't even like it. Like you want it gone. <laughs> you want to get rid of it. Why not run your your body on this fuel source that doesn't easily run out? And then people notice exactly what you were explaining. Like they don't they don't bonk, they don't hit the wall, they can do things for longer periods of time and and they end up losing weight. It's great. Yeah, it's it's something like 150,000 calories. Uh, that that's what we're storing in our body with with our fat, which is why we can last for a couple of weeks without eating. I mean, isn't that amazing? But so many of us are conditioned just to burn on carbs because we've been raised on a diet that's very high in processed carbs and sugars that it's hard to make that switch to start burning fat. We start shaking, you know, uh, we feel very uncomfortable. Um, we feel very sweaty, which is why it's so important, in my opinion, maybe other people have different philosophies about this, but is to go easy into this stuff. Don't don't like kick your breath's ass and and try to just like, change a habit that you've had for 20 years overnight, you go very calmly into it and build your base. And that's how you're going to really get strong and you're going to be able to do things you never thought you were able to do before by building that base slowly. I love that. What are some other ways that mindful breathing um, has improved performance that was maybe a little surprising to you as you were doing your research? Well, this is something that is just sweeping the performance world right now. I can't tell you how many calls that I've been getting from elite coaches from sports teams. You know, I'm not a breathing therapist. I'm a science journalist, so I stay out of that stuff. I'm not going to be the one training anyone. Uh, I'll write about it. I'll be curious about it, but but that's that's not my jam. I don't want to wear that hat too often. But people have been doing this for a long time. If if you look at conditioning runners to nasal breathe as opposed to mouth breathe. This has been around for decades and decades. And the work that Carl Stow did with first the Yale track and field team and then with the 1968 um, U.S. men's team, uh, he prepared them for Mexico City, which is at an altitude of, what, 6,000 6, feet. They were the only team that did not need oxygen before or after the race, and they destroyed everybody it's still i believe still today it's the greatest track and field showing of of any olympic team in in history and they did it by learning how to breathe properly by not only training their bodies but by training their respiratory systems we have 11 pounds the average adult male will have about 11 pounds of muscles tied to respiration so we're so focused on every other muscle in our body but we're not focusing on our breathing muscles, which is where we get most of our energy, especially at in extreme states of performance. This is the thing to focus on first and foremost, which is why so many trainers, Brian McKenzie, Patrick McEwen, Laird Hamilton, what they start with is your breathing. It starts there and then you can build on that. Mm. I When I'm watching the Tour de France or something, I, I see these guys and they've got their, their jerseys fully unzipped. And so, you know, they've got their bib shorts on, but you can see their chest, you know, sometimes they'll have a heart rate monitor on and you can see their bellies and, and these cyclists are so, so lean. I mean, very, very lean, three, four or 5% body fat. And they're climbing these Hills and their jerseys are flapping in the wind. And you can see, it's almost like a, like a bowling ball in their belly. It's totally different than I think most people breathe. Would you agree? Oh, for sure. You can't do this without having some state of respiratory efficiency, right? There's no way you're going to ever qualify for the Tour de France 
without understanding at least some capacity of your breathing. And again, I go to the animal kingdom. When you want to see proper breathing, just look at any other animal. Look at your dog when it's sleeping. Look how it's breathing. It's breathing into its belly. Look at an infant. Look how it's breathing. It's breathing into its belly. Look at any other animal. They know how to breathe. And humans, our breathing has become so dysfunctional that we think it's normal to be breathing with our shoulders, to be hunched over, to be holding in our stomachs all the time so we look a little skinnier. I mean, this is what's destroying our health on so many levels. And uh, it's interesting now to just see people finally coming around to this. Um, And it's not too much of a leap of logic, right? (laughs) It's Once I heard this, I was like, well, of course. There's nothing really controversial about it and yet I had never heard this stuff before until I went out into the field for, for years and and talked to people who were experts in this field and and studied it. And I just thought, God, wish I had known this 30 years ago. I would have <laughs> turned out a lot better than than I have. Well, I just the title of your book just says it all. It's a new science of a lost art. It's a lost art that you're right, is like it's hidden in plain sight. And, and people knew it. They, the ancient texts that you mentioned, um, you know, all these, all these authors in the past that talked about how important it was to breathe. I mean, I remember earlier this year, I read a book from uh, Wallace D. Waddles. He wrote the, the book called uh, Science of Getting Rich. This was in like 1910, 1911. And when I, when I got the book from, uh, I believe it was Audible, they had a few other books you could get with it for free. And one of them was like how to, the science of, of being well, I believe is what it was called. And he has an entire chapter that, that's talking about breathing, deeply breathing into your belly. And like, they knew it <laughs> and it just got lost. How, how, in your opinion, how did all of this get hidden from us in plain sight? I think a lot of it, and, and no one knows. Okay. Th- these are just my thoughts. And, uh, you know, I, if from thinking about this stuff for a long time, but I think a lot of it stems from a lot of Western arrogance because so much of what was happening in the thirties, twenties, thirties, and forties in Western medicine was just mind blowing and amazing. We've had all these diseases. Now we not only understand where these diseases come from, you know, they're not coming from air. Um, they're, they're, coming from germs or they're coming from lack of vitamins or they're coming from a virus. We not only understand them, but we have, we're developing cures for them. So something like scurvy, scurvy has been plaguing humanity for, for hundreds, even thousands of years. Oh, it's a deficiency in vitamin C. You just eat vitamin C. You no longer get scurvy. Same thing with rickets, you know, deficiency in B same thing or, or D um, and or berry berry deficiency in vitamin B. So I think that we thought that Western medicine was going to fix everything for us. And for the most part, it kind of did. The invention of antibiotics and penicillin, polio vaccines. I mean, this is incredible stuff. But I think what we lost sight of is it's life is not just about not dying from a sickness life is supposed to be about being healthy you know compensation is different from health we thought that we could eat whatever foods we wanted and just take a few vitamins at the end of the day and we'd be fine well look how that turned out right you got 40 percent of the population's obese 60 percent is overweight following these guidelines so 
when it comes down to to breathing, a lot of Western scientists poo-pooed the yoga stuff, the pranayama stuff, the qigong stuff, because they said, oh, this stuff isn't true. This is just crazy myths. Until we got instruments to measure it. And that's where things have really changed. When you hear these stories about these monks who are able to sit in the snow for eight hours at a time and melt a circle around them. Yeah, right. No one's going to believe it until you get them into a lab and you see they can do exactly that. And that's what Wim Hof has done a lot of. He's like, oh yeah, well, test it, right? It's not so hard to test it, measure it. And so with all of these measurements that we now have available to us, so many of us have instruments that we can measure our health in our houses now, right? With these wearables, these machines would have cost $20,000 15 years ago. And that's where once you see it in yourself, then you know that something very large is happening here. And it's been wonderful to see so many medical schools coming around to this stuff. I've spoken at several of them and they're like, where'd you find this research? I'm like, well, in your library, <laughs> you know, the, these were people at your institution. Uh, they were working in the thirties and forties. Uh, but, and so, so that's been a, a pretty interesting turn of events is to re-explain to a, a certain population of people in, in, in medicine, what they already knew before they had forgotten it 50 years ago. Wow. That's so cool. Very well explained. Patrick McEwen has mentioned this and you, you just mentioned, you know, germs and pathogens and viruses, which is pretty important these days. Um, he's mentioned how proper breathing and proper, proper nasal breathing can really help us in our fight against a respiratory illness. Can you comment a little bit about that? I think that's super interesting. It makes a lot of sense when you really think about it. If you look at the majority of diseases, vast majority of diseases right now, heart disease, diabetes, arthritis. These are things that are all caused by inflammation, right? Gut problems, even neurological problems, chronic inflammation. Chronic inflammation is mostly tied to the foods we eat Part, partly, but but mostly stress levels. So the, these are things caused by having chronic lower-grade stress throughout your day, throughout your night. So this puts that your body into that state of sympathetic stress where it stays inflamed. Uh, sympathetic stress is great. We wouldn't be able to live without it, but we're not supposed to be in a sympathetic state all day long and all night long. And you can see what's happened. If, if you do do that, you can look around society right now and see how many people are so sick from diseases that we did not have 100 years ago, 200 years ago. So breathing is the quickest way of calming yourself down. And it's a very effective way of helping to reduce that inflammation Breathing is not going to do everything for everyone, okay? It is part of a foundation of health, just like food is part of a foundation of health and exercise is a foundation of health. So breathing is a way of quickly resetting yourself, getting control of your emotions, of your stress levels, so that you can become calmer throughout the day. And by doing that, you're going to be bolstering your immune function, right? Your, your immune function is going to wither away if you are constantly stressed out because that's what autoimmune disease is, <laughs> where, where people have been stressed for so long that their immune systems start running amok. 
So slow, focused, calm breathing can help with that, can help reduce inflammation, can help calm your mind, can help allow your body to operate more efficiently, but also breathing through the nose can reduce the viral load. So our noses are our first line of defense in the body. So they actually kill pathogens. They kill bacteria and viruses. So it's our filter. So it's another reason to breathe through the nose and breathe in these calming ways. And absolutely, you can further bolster your immune function by just doing that. That's so cool. I love that. You mentioned that calm breathing can can be a benefit both day and night. And last night, um, I had a great night's sleep. I went to bed fairly early. I woke up naturally without an alarm clock. It was about six hours and I, I felt fine and woke up and had really good energy. But before I went to bed, I took a little strip of tape and I put it over my lips and that's called mouth taping. Can you tell us a little bit about mouth taping, what it is and why people should maybe explore it? Yeah, this stuff sounded pretty kooky to me when I first heard about it me years too. ago. And, me too. And I did what every other fool would do and I went on YouTube and saw a bunch of just garbage there. And I said, there's no way I'm doing that. Um, but I was at Stanford doing the experiment right after the experiment, actually. And I saw Dr. Ann Kearney. She's a speech language pathologist. I had read up on her work and I said, Hey, do you have a second? Uh, you know, I'm a journalist and I'm working on this book and I'd love to get a quick interview with you. So she took me to her office and her office had all of these rolls of tape around and uh, I was like, Is, what, what do you use that for? She's like, oh, I, I prescribe this to, to all of my patients to put a little piece of tape on their mouth. It's this very, has this very light adhesive. This isn't like duct tape or anything. And it just trains you at night to close your mouth. Because if you're nasal breathing throughout the day, but you're not nasal breathing at night, you're really not getting all the advantages of this that you could. That's a third of your life. You're breathing through your mouth. And something like 60 to 70% of the population breathes through their mouths at night, which is such bad news. So this was just a training technique. And I said, okay, you know, that that seems cool. seems interesting because I'd heard about it before, but was, was not really doing this full time. And um, I started doing it and I cannot tell you what a difference it made in me. And I said, oh, this is just subjective. I'm just one person. But then I started hearing from dozens and dozens of people. And since the book has come out, came out in May, so what, about eight months ago, I can't tell you how many people have written me, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds who have said, oh my God, I've been snoring for 30 years. I have to sleep in another room for my spouse. Um, you know, I wake up with this dry mouth. I have cavities, periodontal disease. I'm not snoring anymore. Even people with sleep apnea. So it's been shown to, to actually improve sleep apnea for some people with sleep apnea. It's not a blanket cure-all for everyone. We want to make that very clear. Um, and a lot of these people are really pissed off because they had never heard of it before. They had been given sleeping pills, right? <laughs> They'd been given a, a CPAP. Um, they had been uh, uh, buying houses that have extra rooms that they could sleep in so they wouldn't wake up their spouse. But they didn't know about this simple hack that was basically free that could really help them. And, and there's no side effects to this beyond feeling better because any nasal breathing is, is good breathing. So um, I'm a huge fan of this. 
I still do it today. Some people just need to do it for a couple of months and then they train themselves, but I just don't have that jaw structure from having so many extractions and headgear and braces and all that, that I, I use it every single night. And when I don't, I immediately feel the difference. Wow. That's so cool. I, feel a huge difference as well. It's really amazing. And yeah, I'd be pissed off too if I was given a bunch of pills when I can buy these, you know, yeah. really inexpensive rolls of tape that last forever. <laughs> yeah. It makes such a big difference. Wow. That's so crazy. We have to ask you a little bit about um, freediving. We were fortunate enough to interview uh, Tanya Streeter a few months ago. She's mm-hmm. a freediver, oh, yeah. world champion to this day. Amazing. How did you become interested in freediving? I grew up near the ocean in Orange County in Southern California. And so I was always in the water growing up. I loved it. That was the the salvation to all the kookiness of OC back in those days. And, you know, then I moved to San Francisco and I surf up here and I'm out in the water as, as often as I can. Wherever I travel, you know, that's where I go. I go to a beach to, to surf or swim. And so I had been working with Outside Magazine. I've been writing for them for a very long time. And they said, you know, uh, do you have any stories? And a friend had sent me this clip of this freediver, this this video of this freediver, which I had never seen this before. People thought that this was weird. They're like, of course you had seen it. I hadn't. You know, I'm, I'm a scuba diver. I'm an advanced scuba diver, and I do that when, when I can. But I've never seen anyone free dive. And the clip blew me away. And so I talked to my editor there, Alex Hurd, and I said, you know, I should do a story on this. This is in- incredible. It, it looks totally unreal. And it turned out that there was a world freediving championship coming up in, in a couple of months. And it was in Greece. I thought, there's no way I'm going to convince these people to, to send me to Greece. But they did. And I said, awesome. So I, I went to Greece for a wow. couple of weeks. And I saw this these people take a single breath of air and just disappear. It's like they were slow motion rockets going off into some distant universe because the water there is so clear, you know, visibility is like 200 feet, 200, 250 feet. So you would just watch these people fade off until they were just the speck of light below you. And then they would come up a few minutes later and this just completely blew my mind. So I got to be friends with a few of these divers, the competitive divers, not really my thing. I mean, it's amazing that they do this. Awesome. Go for it. So happy for you. But I also saw a guy come up dead for like a couple of minutes till he was resuscitated. People came up with bleeding faces. Wow. They came up unconscious. And I was like, how could you take something so beautiful? and turn it into a competition, <laughs> you know, to typical. And this is, this is just me. I'm sure other people have other arguments. Like I said, everyone's free to do whatever they want. This, <laughs> this was just my, my take on it. I said, I wonder if there's a different side of free diving that's not just competing and seeing if you can survive diving as deep as you can, you know, and not come up with a bloody face. And there was, and I was able to meet a few of the divers there. And they said, we want to take you into the real world of free diving where none of this exists, where you're able to tune into your body, where you're able to become a 
non-breathing part of the underwater environment where you're able to commune with dolphins and whales because they will accept you because you're silent because you're just like them i said well that's the stuff i'm into so that's how that that book developed and freediving is just at the beginning of the book the the book deep looks at the human connection to the ocean from the very surface to the very bottom of the deepest sea of the Marianas Trench. So um, that's how that, and up up at top, you know, in the shallower waters, there's free diving, but then you get into magnetoreception, electroreception, all of that. So I still free dive as much as I can because of the pandemic, I haven't been able to get out much, but it's the first thing I'm going to do when I'm, when I'm able to travel. But it's this different kind of free diving, this meditative, this underwater yoga that's what it is. It's the most calming, beautiful thing I've, I've, I've ever done. And um, I'm so happy that I was introduced to this, this other side and understand it in a different way. That's so cool. Wow. Besides freediving, what are you looking forward to the most for the future? I know this is a pretty exciting year for your book. I think I read that it's going to be translated in, I believe, 30 different languages, which is fantastic. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a book like this doesn't seem like it, you know, takes... Uh, just a week or so to write. <laughs> you did a, an incredible amount of research. Um, so what are you working on for the future? Yeah, when I when I write a book, I go fully, try to really immerse myself deeply in these worlds. And I love it. I don't view it as work. It's all I do at night. It's I wake up in the middle of the night, have thoughts about it, wake up in the morning, get working on it, call people, travel. I just really try to get within that space and understand it as deeply as I can. Because just like the reader, I'm coming in from out of the blue into these subjects. I know nothing about this stuff before I get into it. And with breath, it was a steep climb because you have to learn all about physiology, ATP, electron transport chain, circulation, uh, all of this medical terminology that I didn't know at all. So that took a very long time. So, you know, in the future, uh, I am hoping to to go on a European tour uh, if things are open up enough in, in late May. That's what we're setting up right now. Yeah, it's coming out in, in something like 32 languages, which is such a trip, but obviously awesome. Um, and the response from from Europe so far, so far has just been incredible. And then we're hoping to, to turn all this into a um, both those books into a mini series. So that's what I'm right, right after this call. I, I got to get on that call with, with them. And uh, we're plotting out these, these different episodes right now, not, not just all on breathing or all on free diving, but how we've lost connection with our evolution and how by placing ourselves back in that environment in which the body was created, how so many of these chronic conditions can go away and what that means for the future of health. So that's that's kind of how we're framing it right now. So if that goes through, that's I'll, I'll get back on the road for the next couple of years and just be doing that, which sounds really nice right now that after a year nice. sitting down downstairs in my house you know, <laughs> in front of a microphone. Wow. Yeah, that sounds really nice. Well, what an incredible journey of, of learning and you know, all the things, you know, starting from scratch, basically to, to go out and learn it's such a vast amount of knowledge that you put into that book. How has it changed your personal life? What, what, what do you do? What do you eat? What do you do for exercise? Mm. What do you think about for breathing? How has this changed your personal life? 
Well, I got rid of all my clothes and I just wear robes now. Um, Perfect. And and jewels and crystals and <laughs> dream catchers. Hair. Yeah. <laughs> because it's great. It's great to be out on the street and be called breath guy. Good to get out. Hey, breath guy. Breath guy. Uh, that's I'm super stoked about that. Um, no, uh, you know, I'm I'm a journalist, so uh, I try to stay as objective as possible. If something is BS, I don't care if that's coming from Western medicine or New Age medicine or or someone who's written a book or not, then then I want to call that out. So I am am very, very much not trying to confuse myself with the breathing therapist dude, you know, with a guy in the tight black t-shirt at at a stadium with a huge sign behind him that says breath, who's clapping his hands a lot. Like I I don't, I don't want to be that. So uh, but Having said that, that's the big caveat part of this that I have to keep doing. Um, having said that, of course, I picked up tricks along the way, right? You, you can't meet these people and see them being so transformed and meet these researchers and see this data over and over and over again without wanting to adopt a few of these techniques into your life. So I've always been a, a good eater. Um that's that's come pretty naturally just try to stay away from processed crap as often as possible um but i i am now in uh, you know the number one thing is is breathing awareness whenever i'm working out if i'm surfing if i'm running martial arts or whatever i'm totally aware of my breathing the whole time and i'm able to turn it up and turn it down and just having that awareness is that's what it has to start with and that's so much of it and then once you have the awareness you can then use these different tweaks at different times to optimize your performance. So since I've talked with all these top breathers, I've, I've got those in my back pocket, which is great. But I've been getting so stressed out by my schedule um, and feeling that I was talking the talk but not walking the walk as much as I, I should have. So for the past two and a half months, I, I wake up and the first thing I do is come downstairs to my house and and do some kundalini breathing, um, which I just find is so calming and yet energizing at the same time. And uh, there's something else going on there beyond just the breathing. And that's what I'm going to start picking away at uh, whenever I have a moment to, to go back into some, some more research. Mm. Wow. That's fantastic. What an amazing conversation and what an amazing book. I mean, you just, we said it in the intro, it, it, you combine really funny stories, really deep science. You, you cuss, which I love. Um, and there's, and there's drills. There's like practical things that people can do. They, they can put this in their daily lives and their practice. And it's not difficult and it's available on your website, which is amazing. If you had to leave the listener with one simple takeaway from this conversation uh, today, what would that be? I know I just mentioned this, but but it comes down to awareness. You're going to open a book and you're going to see 400 different breathing techniques, you know, um, and, and it's just totally confusing at the beginning. But it really starts with that awareness that the human body is is designed to heal itself, okay? And if we weren't able to heal ourselves, we would have all been dead at, at day one. There's constant regeneration happening in the body. So your breathing is going to allow you to shift into separate states to have that happen more efficiently. So as boring as this sounds, that breathing awareness is, is the number one thing. Then after that, you can get all into the granular details, all the, the permutations. But just because something is simple doesn't mean it's effective. Look at food. 
the simplest advice on food don't eat eat whole foods don't eat processed crap it's not that hard and breathing is the same thing and and you're right um these these practices they're available for free on my site if you want to read how to do the practices the book is a deep dive into what happens when we do them where they come come from why they affect our bodies in certain ways so the the how the the breathing steps is is the easy part and um I'm also trying to put that on on this thing called Instagram, which is totally new to me. Oh man, so, don't um, even get me started. Uh, Instagram has been endlessly frustrating to try to learn how to use. I'm yep. With you. <laughs> well, yep. this is fantastic. Tell us where people can find those resources and where they can connect with you and follow your work. On Instagram, no, uh, <laughs> you're you're gonna be dis- disappointed by by my page, but I'm not posting. You know. Um, pictures of me drinking coffee or any of that crap i'm just trying to use <laughs> that page to disseminate research and science and that's at mr jamesnester.com mr because as i've i've told the story many times but some other ass has, has taken james nester uh so i funny have the mr wow the, funny. the nerve he's some like sculptor in michigan too which <laughs> Makes it even worse. So, uh, my website at mrjamesnester.com has all of the scientific studies. If you're like, yeah, this is all complete BS, why don't you look at the 500 studies on the site with the videos, with the data sheets, with the interviews with professors from Harvard and so on and so forth? Uh, you can start there. Um, and uh, it also has exercises and it has some interviews with some experts in the field as well, which hopefully I'll be doing some more of uh, whenever I can find a minute. That's great. We'll link to all of that in the show notes. James Nestor, best-selling author of Breath, The New Science of a Lost Art. Thank you so much for all of your work, all of your research, for making such a great book. I really appreciate that you were the one to read it in the Audible. I always love that. <laughs> and thank you for taking the time to do this interview today. We really appreciate it. And there's a lot of really great information that can help people. So thank you very much. Hey, thanks a lot for having me. Absolutely. And this has been another episode of Boundless Body Radio. <laughs>